Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, one of your co-hosts, Jessica. And as always, I am joined by my better pod half, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. That statement makes us sound like we were pod people. (laughs) My better pod half. Maybe we are. (laughs) Who knows at this point? We don't know. (laughs) Well, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you are not new to the show, welcome back. This week, we are going to be covering a very intense topic, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it is the death of Rebecca Zahau. But before we dive into the content, we're going to talk about where you can find us on social media, and we're going to talk about the drink of the week, all that fun stuff. You can find us on all the socials. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls, so that's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to hang out with us and interact with us on a more, say, like, personal basis, join our Facebook group at Three Spooked Girls Official. It has been a really great kind of monotony breakup in this quarantine go in every day and interact and see the funny memes that are posted and the the discussion that happens and that's where we have our watch parties we did a live stream this last month in april mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun stuff happening in that group yeah definitely check that out if you would like to support the show you can become a patron at patreon.com backslash three spooked girls or in the link tree below there is a link you can clicky click and go there also i found this out today because i did not know this existed (laughs) so i was on instagram tara handles our instagram account and i was on there and tara had kept saying to me over and over again oh the p.o box is on the instagram and i would go and i'd look and read and i'm like it's not here it's not written like p.o box blah 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 And then today I looked and I was like, what are these little videos? She has put these amazing little highlights out there for you guys that has all of the content you need to know. It's on Instagram. So if you are interested in being a patron of the show, there's even a highlights that tells you all of the different categories, what you get, that kind of stuff. And it's right there. So if you don't want to make the commitment to click all the way to patreon.com, you can check it out on Instagram. But, you know, you have to sign up through (laughs) patreon.com. But as little as a dollar, you get a free bonus episode every month. In April, we decided to do something really nice. Well, I should say Tara decided to do something really nice when we were doing the editing. You probably saw that we 
talked about the Tiger King and it wasn't like how a lot of shows are talking about it. We did a kind of a different spin on it. But I may have mentioned to Tara that I was going to put tiger makeup on and she thought that meant I was going to put like orange eyeshadow on with like a really nice wing, maybe a couple lines. And then I sent her a picture and she's like, you're a full fledged fucking tiger. <laughs> I'm like, yes. And uh, one of our patrons commented today, which cracked me up, said it's Carol Baskin and the tiger who allegedly ate her husband. And I was like, yay. <laughs> Best caption ever. <laughs> I know. I was like, this is perfect. So for little as a dollar, you get a bonus content. This last month, they got a video. Generally, it's five and up good videos. Mm-hmm. But $2 extra a month, you get two extra episodes, which are the Jessica Slaughter's movie reviews slash plot lines, and you can win some swag that way through guessing things. It's really fun. You should check it out. Mm-hmm. $5 and up, get video content. They get their own Facebook group. They get a whole bunch of other stuff. And then it just goes up from there. So if you want to support the show, go and check that out. If you already are supporting the show, thank you so much. We love you. Yes. Thank you guys so much. I guess we should talk about what the drink of the week is. Yeah. Oh, no. Before that, I want to go back to that comment I made about the highlights on the Instagram. Oh, okay. If you didn't know, we have a P.O. box. Mm -hmm. And if you like to send us like a letter or a card or something like that, Tara and I both really love like handwritten notes. Once quarantine kind of lifts, if you want to, you know, send us postcards in your travels, we'd love that. Mm-hmm. And you can find that it's in the highlights there. It's also in the show notes. It's also probably in a hundred other locations. I don't know where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in the show notes and I usually put it in at least the Monday episodes. Uh, Sometimes they sneak in the stabbies as well. They're in the highlights on Instagram. They are in our description on the Facebook like page. They're in the description in the main Facebook group. Or if you're just like, hey, I'd like to write you guys, just DM us anywhere and we will get that to you. Because, yeah, we got a P.O. box. Or if you're a patron, uh, that's what the return address is when I mail you the welcome swag from Jessica and I. There you go. Easy ways to find it. Mm-hmm. So the drink of the week that Kate whispered into my ear earlier today, not five seconds before we started recording, but like hours ago. Just kidding. You all saw the live stream. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because her death happened on Coronado Island, which is off of the coast of San Diego. Mm-hmm. The drink of the week is the Coronado tequila cocktail. So to find out more about that, check back on Sish tomorrow and it will be there. And yeah. Okay. And now we're going to take a quick promo break and hear about a couple other fun podcasts. Hey there, I'm Jennifer and I host Haunted Happenstance, a creepy and quirky little audio drama set in a historic residence in Boston, Massachusetts. You see, I've always loved a good ghost story. And as it turns out, ghosts have always loved me too. Convenient? Maybe. Coincidence? Perhaps. But I think it's a bit more than that. Let's see if you agree. So sit back and get ready to join me and my neighbors for some truly spooky tales that can only be explained as haunted happenstance. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Do you believe in the paranormal? And Wes and I, you know, we were touching and we went and we put our hands on her to start praying. And it was like, she's gone. She's on the other side of the parking lot. Like, 
literally, like for lack of a better word, what the hell just happened? Like whatever this was, was from the pits of hell. Are you on a constant quest to find cryptids? And all three of them were merging on the car. And I looked over and I looked up and it was kind of looking down at us. And it reminded me of a monkey. It it got down like it was going to charge us. It was so big, I felt like it could have grabbed the side of the car and flipped it over. Is your mind swirling with weird conspiracy theories? Throughout the summer of 2001, we knew about the 9-11 attack. We absolutely knew about it, and we talked about it all the time. Your family might think you're crazy, but we have good news for you. You're not alone. The Confessionals is a podcast where witnesses of the unexplained share their personal encounter stories. From UFOs and Bigfoot to hauntings, demons, and conspiracies. Come join us every Tuesday for a mysterious and creepy new episode. You can find The Confessionals on your favorite podcast player and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm your host, Tony Merkel. Let's go. Okay, well, welcome back from that promo break. We hope you had fun on your little journey through it. And we're going to get down to some content today about Rebecca Zahau. Tara's going to run down some information on her, and then I'm going to take over and talk about her death, the investigation afterwards, Tara and I's love affair with Billy Jensen and Paul Holes. It's going to be fun, so stick around. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and run down their background, and I'm going to run through kind of how she ended up in California, and then we will get through to right before she ended up dead or murdered, depending on what camp you are in. Okay, so Rebecca was born on March 15th, 1975 in Falam, which is in northwestern Burma. Probably pronouncing that wrong, so please forgive me. She was one of six children and raised as a Protestant Christian. She lived in many different countries that included Nepal and Germany. Her religion was an extremely important part of her identity and her life. She actually went to the Calvary Chapel Bible College in Austria, and that's where she met her first husband, or I guess her only husband, whichever way you want to look at it, Neil Nalepa. She would then move to the U.S. around 2001, and her and Neil would get married in 2002. The couple would live in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he was a nursing student and she was a tech in an optometrist office. Majority of her family also had moved to the U.S. as well, and they basically lived in St. Joseph, Missouri, so out in the Midwest. And I know we got quite a bit of Missouri folks, so shout out to you guys. Mm-hmm. Her sister Mary describes her as, quote, she was funny and charming and she could always make you laugh even on your worst day. She would take the clothes off her back if she thinks you needed it. She'd be there for you if you needed her. She was just this warm personality that lights up the room. And, you know, when I say that, it's not because she's gone. She really was that. And if you talk to everybody who knows her, they will say the same thing because she really was the same to everybody, end quote. And on top of that, she was also very much into fitness just like a huge health nut. She always took it very seriously, took her diet very seriously. She didn't even drink alcohol because she just would be on that soapbox of it's empty calories. I'm not going to fuck with it. I'd rather have a protein shake or eat or whatever kind of thing. And she also enjoyed painting. She was an artist. Yeah, I saw some of her paintings. They're actually quite cute. Yeah, they were really cute. And on top of that, like I said, she was very well educated and she actually spoke six languages, two of which included Nepali and Hindi. So that's really impressive because I only speak like one and a half. So here we are. (laughs) You said half. I was like, what's the half? 
Spanish, but it's like half dumped out of my brain, you know, Right. which I'm actually pretty impressed with myself because I can understand it still very fluently. But if you try to ask me to like answer you or talk it back, then my brain's like, no, I don't know what's happening. But I can still understand it very well. So that's why I give myself credit for half. Now, things would take a shift in Rebecca's life when she met Jonah Shackney at her job. He had came in for an eye exam, and this was in 2008. Now, it's said that she pretty much dropped everything for Jonah. She put her whole life on hold to be with him and spend time with him and his kids because he had kids. She even stopped going to church, which was a big, big deal. We'll talk about the documentary that Jessica and I both watched. But her sister talks about how they were in like a Christian rock band type of thing together when they were younger. And I thought about you like instantly. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just it was a big part of her life. So it was a big deal that she would give that up for him because it just wasn't his thing. But it was said that closer to her death, she was kind of looking at churches to go back to, though. So. She was obviously still a spiritual person and, you know, still had her beliefs that she had. And I don't think that you have to go to church to be a good Christian in this case or whatever religion you are. You know, I don't think that's a thing. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of Jonah, so a little about him so you can kind of get the picture on him if you're not familiar. So Jonah owned and was, of course, the CEO of Medics Pharmaceutical, which was a cosmetics pharmaceutical company and it did very very well man was a fucking millionaire on millionaire he had a lot of money they basically had their success with a botox substitute type of injectable is what it was and as i mentioned he had children because he had been married previously from his first marriage he had two children who were in their teens during this time and then in his second marriage he had been married to a woman named dina and they had a son named max and by 2011 he would be six years old so as expected or i guess kind of stereotypical the relationship between rebecca and the teen kids was not very good it's basically said that the teens hated her. They did not like her, whether it had to do with like her age or other things, things like that, because she was about 20 years younger than Jonah. So that also could have played into it. And things were so bad that at one point she had confided into her sister that she was actually thinking of either taking a break with Jonah on their relationship or just ending things completely because it was just too hard on her. But she didn't. But on the other side of that, with Max, they had a really great relationship. Her and her family adored him. They called him Maxie. That was his nickname, you know, with him. Mm -hmm. They would read books together. They would play together. He'd, you know, always ask her, be like, can you make me my breakfast? Will you make this snack for me? Things like that. They were buddies. Like, she took care of him, and they had a really solid relationship. So Jonah and Rebecca were together for about two-ish years leading up to her death. And she was legally married during this time. Her divorce didn't finalize until February of 2011, so shortly before she died. Right. We're going to kind of jump ahead now because there's a few important dates in July that we're going to focus on now pretty much for the rest of the episode. And one of them being July 11th. But before I get into that day, I want to mention something just really quickly. So Rebecca's sister, Mary, that I mentioned earlier, had been on the phone with her the previous day because their 13-year-old sister, Zena, had been visiting out in California and was going to get ready to go home back to Missouri on the 12th. 
Mary had said that their conversation was normal, that they were talking about their dad's birthday because he was getting ready to turn 80. So she was trying to convince Rebecca to come out so they could throw like a big party type of thing and all of that. So nothing out of the ordinary there. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm just doing the math that he's 80 and their his daughter's 13. <laughs> yeah, he's old as fuck. He's old as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's why my face I was like, ew. Oh. <laughs> She's a whoopsie. She had to have been like a whoopsie. Yeah. But how old was the mom? I was gonna say, I bet our mom is like hell like at least probably in her 50s or something when because that's possible oh no definitely like she's a whoopsie baby yeah i don't know but yeah in that documentary they definitely said 80 yeah like over and over and over again (laughs) i think it's because like i was like trying to process taking all these notes yeah and now that i'm sitting back and listening to you just tell me like at my leisure i'm like wait (laughs) i don't approve of this message (laughs) you're like her grandpa what is happening (laughs) right Very much so. And in a lot of cases, like, great-grandpa. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. So back to July 11th. Let me preface by saying, of course, because Joan is a millionaire, all of this stuff takes place in, like, a huge-ass mansion with a guest house and all of this fancy-ass shit. So it ain't a regular house. Yeah, it had, like, 27 rooms. Right, right, right. Yeah, it had like 27 rooms and it was just massive and huge and basically its own little town kind of situation. They called it a compound a lot. Yeah, the documentary is literally death at the mansion. Yes. Anyway, so Rebecca said that she was in one of the downstairs bathrooms by the foyer, kind of like under the stairs situation. And her sister Zena, the 13-year-old, was in another bathroom in the house taking a shower while Max was playing. The next thing she knows is she hears this loud crash and possibly a dog bark. There's a couple different versions on that. Mm -hmm. She rushes out to see that six-year-old Max is laying on the ground in the foyer where there's also stairs and a banister and all of this stuff with his scooter. And then there's some soccer balls in this area as well. And she says that she heard him say a word, which some of the sources I read said he said Ocean, which is the dog's name. And then he went unconscious. Rebecca says that she yelled for Xena to call 911 and then she started performing CPR on him. Now, we mentioned Paul Holes and Billy Jensen and whatnot, and this is kind of where the docuseries will come into play for me. This is on Hulu if you want to watch it. Like I said, it's Death at the Mansion. If you just search Rebecca's name, it will come up. Mm -hmm. Oxygen did it. It's really good. So it has Paul Holes, Billy Jensen, and Lonnie Coons on it. And they're doing a revisit their own investigation on this. It's a four-part series. And uh, yeah, definitely, definitely recommend. So they're interviewing Van Erhard, and he was one of the responding detectives on the call. He says when he got there that Zena had opened the door for him, slash it was open, and that he could hear Rebecca screaming, and that right away he saw that Max was not breathing, and that his skin was like ashen looking, and that Rebecca was wailing and screaming, and obviously like in distress because she cares about this little boy, and her head is in her hands, and she's kneeling next to him, and just very, very much in distress, and some of the articles were like saying that the cops were being like, 
There was no evidence she even tried to do CPR. But when you hear the 911 call, you hear her yelling and panicking and whatnot. So it's like, what if she was trying to do that and then she's just went into this panic mode because he's not responding? That's kind of what I was thinking. Also, in that documentary, they later say that because she gave him CPR, he didn't die at the house. Yeah. So suck it, other articles. Right. It's interesting because also certain cops have preconceived notions before they even get there about certain things. Mm-hmm. Like Van. Yes. He fully admits it. And then they also note that there are pieces of a shattered chandelier all over the foyer and next to Max as well. Max was transported to Rady's Children's Hospital there in Southern California. He was in a coma and he had injuries to his spinal cord and facial bones, which is to be expected if he fell off the banister off of stairs. And he had brain damage caused by oxygen deprivation, which all of this kind of came from the injuries and the fall. So the next day, Rebecca takes Zena to the airport as originally planned, and she also picks up Jonah's brother, Adam, who had flown in from Memphis as soon as he heard about this. And she is very supportive with everything to Jonah. You know, she's texting him. She's checking in with him. She's making sure he's okay. She's seeing if he needs things, you know, things like that. And she's also updating her sister, Mary, who's interviewed quite a bit in the docuseries because they are they're like very, very close, you know, just letting her know what's going on because she's very concerned because even though this isn't technically, quote, her child, it's her child. So, you know, and she knows she's in this like weird spot because her and Dina do not have a good relationship whatsoever. And at this point, Dina's twin sister, Nina, has flown into town as well. So that night, Rebecca, Jonah, and Adam, they went out to dinner. Some of the stuff I read was saying, you know, kind of as expected because it's like she was, you know, being kind of quiet and things like that. But it's like, well, look what just fucking happened. How the fuck do you want her to act? The fuck you mean? Kind of shit. And after they had left the restaurant, Rebecca and Adam, they went back to the mansion and Adam was supposed to stay in the guest house. Jonah went back to the hospital to join Dina because they were staying there, of course, with Max during all of this. And there's security footage that does, you know, confirm that he was there. So I'm not going to go too deep into this, but there is some text this night between Nina, Dina's twin sister, and Rebecca just kind of talking about what happened to Max kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's this question of did Nina go over there? She says she didn't, that kind of thing. But there's that. And then there's also there's a focus point of Rebecca's last phone call. The last phone call from Rebecca's phone was to her voicemail and on her phone records, it shows that, you know, she listened to it and then she deleted it, which I don't really see as too weird because unless it's something I need to keep, you know, something important on the voicemail, I delete that shit. I don't really get many voicemails. Most people text me, but like, you know. Right. It depends on her because, I mean, you have to think of like voicemail in 2011 and how it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't ever delete my voicemails because I just don't ever listen to my voicemails. (laughs) 
Well, the voicemail, it would later come out, the voicemail was from Jonah, and he was giving the update that Max would more than likely not come out of the coma, and if he did, things would not be good. The doctors didn't think he would ever really be able to walk or talk ever again. So it's just this really devastating news. So that also could have been another reason she's like, I don't want to hear that ever again kind of thing. And there's also conflicting on that, too. Yes, because that's the thing. Since it got deleted, we can't confirm that's really what was even said. What it was. Yes. Because according to an article that I read, and it'll be in the sources, they can't actually, like, the way it works, like, if I were to call you and leave a voicemail, it doesn't register as a call on yours because it doesn't use anything. It doesn't use part of your service. Ah, interesting. Like, if I were to call you and not leave a voicemail, and then you deleted the actual, like, tracking, like, you know, on your phone when you go on your your recents, if you deleted that, you would have no record that someone ever called you, except for from the other person's phone. Interesting. But that, for timestamp sake, this was, I believe, close to 1 a.m. was when this, like, last phone call on her phone happened. 12.50, 12.55. But before we get into more of what happened on that night, I am going to kind of wrap up the tail end of Max's component of this story because, of course, Jessica's going to take over uh, for Rebecca's death and all of that. So fast forward to July 16th, which would be after Rebecca's death. Max did end up dying from brain damage. And the incident would be ruled as an accident by the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, more specifically by Bill Gore, who was the sheriff. But Dina wasn't so convinced. She ended up hiring a forensic pathologist named Judy Malenik, and she thinks that Max was murdered. She's trying to point the finger at Rebecca because Rebecca was the responsible adult with him, and she's got this, like, shitty dynamic with her and things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And the only other person to blame is a 13-year-old girl. Right. But the pathologist came back and said that, yes, she agrees that she thinks that he was murdered, but that it was not Rebecca. And they eventually had come up with this theory that there had to have been somebody else in the house or something like that that either didn't get reported or that fled or something like that. I mean, it's a big property. It's 27 rooms. Right. So because the trauma doctor did an eval and then, of course, they also did an autopsy report, they agreed with this train of thought because there was damage there to his body and stuff that looked like some of his injuries and whatnot and the trauma had happened on his body before the fall. Mm. And I know there's some theories of possible child abuse and things like that as well. But they believe that the big injuries that were present when they did this autopsy and whatnot did happen before he lost consciousness. So before he fell. So that's like a big, big thing with them. And that also to go with this, they also don't think that he was talking or anything. I mean, I don't see how this is really super relevant, but they were like her saying that he tried to say ocean or say something before he passed out. They're like, because of the severity of his injuries and stuff, there's like, there's no way he said anything type of thing. So that kind of questions her story, but she's not here to talk and ask any more questions. So. Right. And also you have to look at it from the fact that like in that moment, maybe Xena 
said ocean or oh shit or something in the distance. Right. Something happened. Because like unless you've been in this position where you have a child who's gone through this, like how do you really react to that? Right. So, yeah, with Max's uh, death, there's questions, too, because Rebecca's stuff, we obviously are going to have like 100 fucking questions. But it's just like you have law enforcement saying, oh, he fell over the railing. And then you have this other side saying, no, there's something else going on here. And I was also reading stuff that was saying he was kind of a careful kid. So it just seems weird because police tried to come up with this theory that he was riding his scooter down the stairs or trying to ride it down the stairs or something like that. Yeah, the source of he's a careful kid comes from Dina. So Dina's the one out saying, like, he's so thoughtful and he's careful, like, he doesn't take any risks. He's a six-year-old boy. At some point, boys, there's something that clicks. Like, my nephew was very apprehensive as a child, and as he got older, that apprehension went away because he realized he could test the waters. You don't know. And it's like, it's one of these things where things happen like he could have been carrying it and tripped on it too right it's heartbreaking and it's like my other thing too is like because they mentioned the chandelier and everything what if he was also messing around and trying to like grab it and swing from it or something or he was like trying to take his scooter and like catch it Mm-hmm. and then like he caught it like tipped over or something yeah being six and not understanding physics that like he caught it and now it's got to go somewhere and you know kids see things in movies like i grew up i had a mulberry tree this is gonna sound so farmy but like i had a mulberry tree that was back by my rabbit pens <laughs> <laughs> and they had like really thick vine-like branches Mm-hmm. And I used to swing on them. I'd grab like three of them and swing. And like there were times where that shit would fall out of the tree and I'd fall and hit the ground. Like I could have gotten seriously hurt several times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just you don't realize when you're a kid, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a number of things that could have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't I don't even want to imagine going through that as a mom. So it's just like not saying what Dina's doing was doing is justified or anything, but it's like. She's trying to find an answer type of situation. So she's like trying to put blame on something. So she has an answer. Well, and you have to look at it like this. Like if you're Dina and you think your kid is this amazing special kid, I'm not saying Max wasn't because it sounded like he was a real like sweet kid and very loving and caring. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he's not there. And there's probably a lot of like survivor guilt with that because he wasn't with her. And then you have to look at the fact that like Rebecca was with him. And whether or not she truly believes Rebecca had any kind of foul play with him, like even if Rebecca lived, she would have always blamed her because she was there in like the kind of final moments of Max's life. I mean, I kind of get why Dina would be upset and like the things she does later. Right. So this is going to lead us into the night Mm -hmm. since we are now at almost or actually since we're now into the next day because it's 1 a.m. in my timeline. So I am going to hand it to Jessica now. Mm hmm. I want to add one thing in there that I had a note and I didn't know where to put it. So I was going to add it onto the end of Tara's thing. Because one of the questions that I had when I was watching the documentary was, why wasn't Rebecca at the hospital? Like, she loved this little boy. And then you find out in that documentary that Jonah actually told Rebecca not to come to the hospital because Dina was being like so 
aggressive about it, about her. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put that in there because I had nowhere else it would in my stuff. But I wanted to make sure that definitely got in there because I think this is that's a perfect setup to why Dina and Jonah are at the hospital with Max and Rebecca is running around to like airports and things like that and being able to do all these other things. It's not because she didn't care, which a lot of people were like, she's guilty. She had to stay away. She couldn't see what she did. There was an actual reason. It kind of seemed on like the 12th that Jonah and Dina had talked about it because Rebecca on the 12th had called like a local dog daycare place to take care of Ocean so that she could actually go to the hospital and be with Max. So. I want that tidbit because it'll all come together in a few in a few moments. Mm-hmm. So on July 13th, around 6.30 to 6.45 in the morning, we're not 100% sure, Jonah's brother Adam, who was, like Tara said, was staying in the guest house, he had woken up early in that morning because obviously he's from Tennessee, so the time difference, like, so he'd wake up early. And he said he took a shower and... He decided that he was going to go get some coffee. He was going to go get some breakfast or at least look into the house. And he walks out of the guest house and starts to walk towards the main house. And he is met with, well, he's supposedly met with a very gruesome scene. He finds Rebecca hanging from the second story balcony of a bedroom. I'm assuming her bedroom. And she is fully nude. Her wrists and ankles are bound. Her hands are actually behind her. She's been gagged with a long sleeve blue t-shirt that's wrapped around her head and is actually double knotted and has been shoved into her mouth. And at 648, Adam calls 911 and he's on the phone with 911. So I'm going to skip ahead because in the docuseries, this part comes like way later, kind of like in the last episode. But basically what happens is he calls 911 and he's on the phone with them and he's saying at this point that he's cut her down. Now, I want you to remember this because later I'm going to reference when we look into the who kind of done it theories. This is important. Mm -hmm. And on the call, he says to the person, I've cut her down and I've started CPR. And they keep asking him questions that he doesn't ever actually answer. Like they ask, does she have a pulse? And his response is, her wrists are tied. That's not an answer. It would be, hold on, her wrists are tied, let me find, and then answer, but he never does. It's just basically her wrists are tied. Mm. Also, the 911 operator is like, okay, and is basically like, stay on the line, stay on the line, they're coming. And the way the documentary kind of makes it seem is like he hung up eventually. So at this point in time, the medics are called and we're going to talk about one of the medics in a little bit, but the medics call and they basically come in. And the first thing that they have to do is because she's down, they have to assess the situation. They try to revive her, but they actually end up pronouncing her at the scene. So right away, the investigation begins. Is this a suicide because she's hanging? Is this a homicide because... She's like bound up. Basically, shit's happening, right? Jonah finds out pretty much at the same time as he calls 911, he also texts Jonah. And from what I've kind of gleaned is that after he got off the 911 call, he calls Jonah or Jonah calls him, like, you know, that kind of thing. And he basically tells Jonah what happened. And, you know, the police have come, they've taken all of the evidence, they do the investigation, and they have that. Like Tara mentioned, three or four days later, 
Max actually ends up dying. And basically, at this point, Jonah and Dina seem kind of, I mean, of course, they're like in solidarity because it's their son. But the way it's written, because they make a written statement to talk about Max, they say, with great sadness, Dina and I convey the tragic passing of our beloved son. Most of the time I've seen when it, and this is, this is my speculation, guys. Most of the time when I've seen like divorced parents, it's always like his mother and I to identify that it's not like my wife and I, but they seem a little, yeah. Which is interesting because it comes out that Jonah and Dina actually have like in their marriage, they were actually physically abusive to one another and they made claims against one another, but they never went anywhere, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Charges never happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So at this point, it's come to find out that both Jonah and Dina are physical violence aggressors and they have that in their past. So it's just kind of like a thing to keep in your mind. On July 22nd, Jonah's alibi is confirmed. And this is just kind of how the public is hearing things, right? And then on July 23rd, Rebecca is buried in a private ceremony. And I was like, that seems awfully fast. That's 10 days later. So basically, at this point in time, her death is still considered undetermined, which to me is like, okay. Mm-hmm. And considering their attitudes before they even get there. Right. It was determined, though, that Rebecca had four instances of head trauma, and they basically were theorizing that when she jumped off of the railing or over the railing, she hit her head on kind of the balcony itself. And then that was what sustained it. So we've gone from like July 23rd and now we're to September 2nd of 2011. And like the sheriff that Tara mentioned, the San Diego Sheriff Bill Gore, he ruled that Rebecca's death was a suicide and that Max's death was an accident. On September 20th, Jonah asked the California Attorney General to look into the case, but really was like, I conclude with what the Sheriff's Department says. And I'm going to get into all the details of the case. I just thought I'd outline kind of like the structure of like where we get this and then work that way. Jonah is also a weird person, not only because he looks like he's frozen in time, but Hmm. because (laughs) he just is kind of weird. When Adam called to tell him what happened, like, you know, on the phone and everything, he walked back into Max's hospital room and he just kind of looked upset. Dina asked him, like, why are you upset? And he told her Rebecca killed herself. She hung herself. And Dina's first response is, why? And apparently he pantomimes a katana going into his torso and says, Asian honor, which apparently, okay, you have to watch the oxygen thing because it's really good. The documentary. Lonnie and Billy go and they, like, any kind of concept that they're coming through, any kind of theory, they go find an expert and interview that person. So they go find this expert on, like, Asian culture, kind of like an overview. And he does say that a lot of ways of restoring, like, honor and taking responsibility for your actions in the Asian culture is to commit suicide, to, like, make atonement. However, she was naked, which in the Asian culture would be considered disgraceful. So, because of that, I don't know if that can pan out. So, one of the major reasons why uh, they ruled the death as a suicide was that there wasn't any additional human DNA found in or on the crime scene. According to Paul, 
Poles, who, as Tara was watching a documentary, was like, it's your boyfriend. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I think this this phrase is very smart. He says this a couple of times in the film, and it's, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I was like, that's smart, because people often assume that, like, criminals are going to run through a crime scene and, like, drop their hair and spit on something and, like, cut themselves open and bleed everywhere. That doesn't happen if, like, you're being methodical. And there's a lot of cases out there, like, look at BTK. Like, when he figured it out, he, like, wore gloves and he, you know, cleaned up after himself. There are people out there who know how to do stuff. (laughs) And they're sick people and they should be cut and put in prison. Mm -hmm. But anyway... Well, I'm sure you're going to get to this, but it's what supports that is that the fact that, yes, there was no other prints on anything, including the knife he used to cut her down. Yeah, we're going to get to that for sure. So basically, they brought him in because he's a forensic criminologist as his kind of title. And he obviously helped solve the East Area Rapist or the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. And so they brought him in as like an expert on this. To, like, go along and look at the forensic evidence they're picking up. Right. And basically what he was saying that because the case was, like, pre-like identified or presumed to be a suicide, there was components of the investigation that was never done. Like, they were only looking in places for DNA that Rebecca would have touched. Mm-hmm. And we're there's a whole bunch of other stuff, so just hold on. So we're going to get through it, I promise you guys. It's a <laughs> lot. I'm just going in order of my notes as I discovered things. So they weren't looking in places of like where an attacker would touch. Mm -hmm. Basically, what you're saying is they had this idea in their head of what happened. So they were tunnel vision. Very much so. So they were looking for what they wanted to look for. They were basically going, this is a suicide. So let's treat this like it's a suicide. Mm -hmm. Not like, well, this seems weird. Maybe we should also kind of do an investigation to see if there's a homicide to it. Right. So, yeah. And basically, the police investigated it as it was a suicide first. And then possibly, maybe, we don't think so, but could be a homicide. Tara mentioned Van Earhart. And he was a first responder, like we said, for Max. And he was also the first responder who got the call for Rebecca. In Adam's 911 call, he gives the address, which is like 1034 Ocean Boulevard or some shit like that. And then is like, it's the house you were at yesterday or the day, but like a couple days ago. Van says that when he got the call, he was like, oh, my God, it's a suicide because he said when we got there for Max, she was so distraught and so upset. And they just assume that she killed herself over like survivor's guilt or that she had done something. I will say that like during this part, they're like asking him questions. You know, he's very like one of the things they say, do you think it's a suicide? And he's like, yes. It's like they barely finish the question. He answers. Which doesn't give a lot of pause to think, like, conviction. Which kind of goes with, is this the party line? Because the San Diego Sheriff's Department, they have very, very rarely entertained any other possibility that this is not a suicide. Right. But I will say that one of the things that Van did say in his interview is that if it is a homicide, he hopes that it does get re-looked at. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of hopes it gets re-looked at just so that family could have peace, like, on both sides, so that Mary and Rebecca's family can, like, they could process and move on. But I think a lot of when it's like, oh, my God, did she or didn't she? Or, like, who could I? Like, a who done it type thing. I think that's, that's probably hard. Yeah. No, for sure. So. 
At this point in time, they start talking about there's a voicemail, like Tara mentioned earlier, and there's also some text messages that are found on Rebecca's phone. And I will say that it's very inconsistent in the reporting of whether they're text messages or if it was like in like the note section of her phone. Mm-hmm. The way they're written, it kind of seems more text messagey, but they're saying that this kind of backs up the evidence that she killed herself because she writes, it's my fault. I allowed myself to completely be cut off from my own life. My life doesn't exist. And this is like what the San Diego Police Department puts up on their PowerPoint to be like, this is the reason she killed herself. But there's like a whole other section of that where she's actually talking about the fact that she's saying this like about Jonah's kids other than Max. Like because she says, being talked to like I'm a worthless person by kids who are spoiled and basically is going on and talking about how like, because Tara, you mentioned like she thought about taking a break from him. Right. Yeah. Because things weren't always so sunshiny. Right. She was also thinking about going home and visiting her family. And so they think that, like Tara mentioned earlier, they think that the voicemail that's on her, that was on her phone was Jonah calling to let her know that Max wasn't going to make it. However, there's no proof to that because they can't back it up on Jonah's phone. Right. He could have also like walked over and picked up the hospital phone. Who knows? But we don't know what it is because it was, it was deleted. Mm-hmm. The other piece of evidence that the police want to use that say it points to suicide is the quote unquote suicide note that she allegedly painted on the door. It says, she saved him. Can you save her? They say that this confirms that Rebecca killed herself out of guilt because one of the things that Jonah says to Dina when Dina's like, I don't want her here. I hate her. She did this. He says, don't blame her. She actually saved his life. Like, this is when they kind of thought that Max was going to turn around, that because she did do CPR, that she saved his life or at least prolonged his life. Obviously, because at this point, they don't know that Max was going to pass away and they didn't know that Rebecca. Right. An independent expert came in and she basically broke it down. She's a crime scene psychologist. Oh, yeah. I liked her. She was great. I didn't write her name down and I feel like a dick. So just watch the documentary and she's wonderful. But she basically came in and she looked at the crime scene. And the one thing I liked is that she kind of, well, because what they do is like Paul Holes and Lonnie Combs and Billy Jensen, they like recreate a perfect replication of this crime scene. You know, they're looking at it and they ask her her opinion on things. And she's really great about it. She talks about the actual suicide note on the door being that it's kind of a fragmented sentence, like two fragmented sentences. She saved him. Can you save her? It's not really how she would write. Also, you have to think of the fact that Rebecca is an artist. And this looks like someone did big, tried to do block letters and try to make it big. And it's the words she used were like aggressive and dark and abrasive, angry, you know, and when you describe Rebecca, it's not that way. Mm-hmm. She was even kind of saying, like, even if she were to do this quickly, it would still be like she did like this whimsical hand motion because Rebecca's painting is very like fluid, kind of like embellishment like movement. So that's kind of what it would be. Also, it's written in third person. And Rebecca was not known to write anything in third person. 
So you're probably thinking, Rebecca's hands were tied behind her back. How could she do this? So the sheriff's department felt that Rebecca could do this on her own. They actually got one of their sheriff deputies who was about her size and build to tie herself up with ropes and put it. And it is possible. It is possible for you to tie yourself tightly from behind or like from behind your back. However, there is some discrepancies in this. One of them is that the rope was tightened by the non-dominant hand. Like Rebecca was right-handed and it was obviously tightened with the left or on the left. So here are some issues. Tara, my first question for you is, as a woman, would you kill yourself naked? No. Literally, Lonnie Combs asked women this. Like, would you kill yourself naked? And women are like, no. Because there's like an embarrassing thing to it. Most women are taught that like being naked in public or being naked in front of people you don't know is something to be very shameful of. I'm not saying that if you get naked in front of other people for work, fun, or shits and gigs, like that you're not and that you would kill yourself naked. I'm just saying that most women would answer that question no. According to the Journal of American Academia of Psychiatric and Psychiatry and Law, sorry. Whew, mouthful. There is zero statistics on how many people kill themselves naked. I tried to look it up for you guys. But though that there is no statistical fact, most suicides, they say that are committed naked, like when they actually kind of run some preliminary things, they find that it's self-harm gone wrong. Gotcha. A lot of times people try to quote Job. I thought this was interesting because they put it in there in this article. And it's like Job 1, chapter 1, verse 21, which is, Naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked I shall return. And a lot of people are like, oh, this is the theory behind naked suicide. Hmm. They say the other reason that a lot of people either attempt suicide naked or are naked, they like put in the note that they didn't want people to have to like clean up too much. So like if they're naked, it's typically done in like a bathtub or something like that. Right. And like I said, most women would see a naked suicide as embarrassing to themselves and their family because obviously, like, once you've killed yourself, you no longer can be truly embarrassed. But that would also leave behind the whole family thing. Mm-hmm. Here's the other fact. And I'm really sorry, gentlemen, if this makes you feel uncomfortable, but you'll be fine. Rebecca was on her period. Right. And as a woman who menstruates, you just don't walk around naked while you menstruate. Mm-mm. Because it's like, and this also happened, like, at the door that Rebecca is at. There is blood on the floor and they just call it a red stain. Yeah, that was weird. And this is the other thought that I have. Like she's naked and she's menstruating and she's doing all this like moving around and everything. And she has to like sit on the floor and like cut the rope. There's no blood over by there, really. Mm -mm. So I'm kind of like, what the hell is happening here? Mm -hmm. So you ready to get into some theories? Yes. Okay, let's start with Dina. So did Dina, Max's mom, kill or have Rebecca killed? Dina is obviously the ex-wife, and she thinks that Rebecca is at fault. It's said that Rebecca, quote-unquote, refused to tell Dina any information of what happened to Max. Like, at first, she was saying, like, this is what happened, but then after a while, she just stopped talking. And it could be that, like, Dina was being really aggressive and that Rebecca just couldn't handle it because, according to Rebecca, she worked out of a bathroom and, you know. And found him. Yeah. He was right there. And so she's probably in shock. So theory number one is that 
She was seen leaving the hospital throughout the night that Dina went over to the house to confront and kill her because Dina knows that the back door to the mansion is always unlocked. Because mind you, they're in like a fucking compound. Like this whole thing is huge. And then she creates a suicide to cover it up. She wrote the suicide note because she was hoping that Jonah would find it and that the note would say like, she saved him. Can you save her type thing? Mm-hmm. And this is also coming from earlier how I mentioned that, like, Jonah said, don't blame Rebecca, she saved him. So it acknowledges that it may have been written to bait Jonah or to punish him. However, this theory is debunked because of the fact that she is seen at the hospital in surveillance footage over and over and over again throughout the night. She's coming and going, like, she'll be in the hospital for a couple hours and then she'll go out for, like, 30 minutes. So there's no real way that she could have, like, come and gone and done all of this stuff. Right. Wasn't enough time. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to our second theory, which is, is a theory, but, like, because one of the other issues with that theory is that Tina couldn't overpower Rebecca. so. We all know that Dina's twin sister, Nina, is in town. So that Nina has been texting Rebecca and Rebecca is not responding. So they go over to confront her together and Nina and Dina kill her together. Nina says that she wasn't at the house. However, there was an eyewitness that night that said they saw someone outside of that house, but did not describe it as Nina, described it as Dina. So this is why... This theory doesn't 100% go away and will come into play a little later because they're thinking that maybe Dina would go over and check on what was happening while, like, they overpowered something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So this means, according to this theory, is that Nina was actually inside, like, putting everything together. The third theory with Dina is that she hired a hitman saying that the back door was unlocked, that all this person have to do is come in and basically attack her. There's no way to debunk this because there's no evidence. There's no, like, payment out of her bank account. There's no transaction or anything like this. There's no evidence either way. However, Dina did file the lawsuit against Jonah for the wrongful death, blaming negligence against Jonah for leaving Rebecca in charge of him, which I believe she won. Hmm. So let's talk about Jonah. There's two theories that he killed her, basically, that he went home and that he was so overtaken with the fact that she was there and he's believing Dina now that he basically like overpowers her and manually strangles her and then makes it look like a suicide. But we know this isn't true because his alibi checks out that he's in the hospital the whole time. The other theory is that he hired someone to kill her because he thought she did it. But obviously there's no evidence to that because there's no money trail. There's also the thought that because the case with Max was kind of widely known, That this could be a rant, like not a random intruder, but like somebody who may have been like a stalker or admirer of hers and came in and attacked her, knowing that everyone would be gone. That someone broke into the home alone and then raped and killed her by manual strangulation. However, there is zero to no evidence to prove this. Well, that's because there's zero to no evidence other than Rebecca. So let's talk about everyone's favorite person. That'd be Adam. Right. So as we know, Adam was the only known person to be on the compound that night. Yeah. So theory number one is, it's really the theory. There's no theory number one, two, or three. It's really, this is the theory. That Adam basically liked Rebecca, fancied her, but also was very angry about what happened with Max. And that Adam came into her room 
the reason she was naked is because she was in the shower and then Adam came in when she was in the shower and basically caught her off guard and was like holding her hostage with the knife that they find. And we'll talk about that, all that evidence and stuff there. And that he basically sexually assaulted her with the knife and then manually strangled her and then made it look like a suicide. So those are the theories. So here's the evidence that kind of back up that this is not a suicide. Obviously, there is zero forensic evidence in this case, Mm -hmm. which, like I mentioned earlier, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. One of the things is because it was a suicide case, they didn't check to see if she had been sexually assaulted. Essentially, they did like a swab for like semen. Right. They're like, oh, there's no semen, so it's fine. And, you know, Paul with his Paulisms is like, "Uh, no, motherfuckers, it is not fine. Right. So the knife that I just mentioned, there were two knives found in the bedroom and they were said to have like, quote unquote, cut the rope because the rope that she allegedly in her suicide or was hung with, I should say, it was like a ski rope for like, I'm assuming like a boat because my like father-in-law has pretty much something very similar to this. Mm-hmm. They say she was like sitting on the floor cutting the rope, which again, she's menstruating and she's naked, but there's like she's sitting on the floor and cutting this rope, but there's no blood on the carpet. So basically, they look at the knife and all four sides of the knife handle, which until that moment, I totally didn't even consider that knives had four sides. <laughs> it had four <laughs> sides. So I was like, oh, it does. All four sides of that handle had blood on it. And we're not talking like, Someone cut their hand this way and grabbed a knife. We're talking like this handle was saturated with blood. Yeah. And so the handle is presumably used to sexually assault her. And that actually later on, we'll talk about the fact that there is kind of like an imprint or like a rubbing on her leg of blood. And it is in the shape very similar to that knife handle. They tried to say that... There's like a wound on her hand that's like, looks like she struggled against the rope on her finger. And the sheriff's department, their expert said, oh, no, what happened is, see, like she stuck the knife through her hand like this. So like between her fingers. And because she did that, blood got all the way through. And they're like, it's basically just a flesh wound. And she would have had to stick the knife in there and then like twist it up and down in there to get the blood as saturated and into the tip. It's like a rounded steak knife looking like maybe a little bigger. And we're talking like it has that groove, like, you know, the black handle that has like the silver, the knife and the hilt are like full length. It's like that. Mm -hmm. And when they basically bring this up in a court case that we'll talk about in a minute, the expert was like. What? No. And basically was made to look like a fucking moron. Obviously, there was no rape kit done besides like the swab for semen. So there was no sexual assault exam done on Rebecca. Right. Tara mentioned this earlier. There was zero fingerprints other than Rebecca's on the knife used to cut her down. So basically what has happened is that Adam went and got a knife from the kitchen, from the butcher block, ran outside, cut her down, but left zero fingerprints. Yeah, was homeboy wearing gloves or what the fuck? Like, mm. Well, you would think that no, because he wasn't wearing gloves when the police arrived. 
Because he threw them away. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, you have to look at the fact that, like, whoever did this to her, I believe it's a homicide, so whoever did this to her was really angry. Like, they took their time. They tied her up. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that also kind of points to Adam being the person is that the knot in which she is tied with has nautical roots, meaning that it's often used to, like, tie up ships. Do you know what Adam does for a living? He's a fucking tugboat operator, which means he, like, legitimately ties ships to other ships. And later on, he's questioned on the stand because, like, spoiler alert, he actually had a civil suit levied against him for the wrongful death of Rebecca. And they ask him point fucking blank, do you use this type of knot? And he says, yeah, I do. Also, the other thing is I want to note that they say that they went to dinner and then they came home and then like he went to bed at like 830, right? But according to her phone records, he called her at 739. So I don't know what that's about. I just want to point that out. Wait, you said he went to bed at 830, but he called her at 730. Right. But like, weren't they together because they were at the hospital? She might have been in the main house and he could have been like in the guest house. She wasn't at the hospital. Right. Basically, what he said is we went to bed or like I went to the guest house and that was like it. I didn't talk to her like after we came home. But then he called her like an hour before, quote unquote, he went to bed. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So he's saying two different. I was like, why is this a thing? Because he called an hour before he went to sleep. (laughs) I was confused. (laughs) Well, no, it's more like I don't trust him and anything he says. No, no, no. I get you because he's saying, oh, as soon as we got back, that was the last I heard from her until I found her body the next morning when she's all rigor mortis and dead. Yes. But then we find out that, yes, he did talk to her. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying now. It wasn't connecting for me. So I was like, that would totally make sense for him to call if they're in two different parts of this compound. It's true. So Adam is the one who discovered her and called 911. He's actually brought in for questioning. And he's kind of being, like, super impatient. And this is, like, throwing up some red flags. So they actually polygraph him that first day. According to San Diego Sheriff's Department polygrapher person, the results are inconclusive. They can't tell. Well, you know those experts. You know those people, Lonnie, Billy, and Paul? They get experts. And they basically brought someone in to look over his results. And they're like, he fucking failed. He has this thing on his finger, and I didn't realize that it's, like, a sweat secretion thing. Like, I don't understand how polygraphs work because it's, like, not science, but it's science. That makes sense? Yeah. And basically, they ask the question, and he gets sweaty when they ask it, like, as they're asking it. And then when he answers, he, like, shoots up, but he says no. They basically ask him two control questions and then, like, the real question that they're trying to ask. So, like, the two control questions are supposed to be, like, slightly embarrassing that would make you nervous so that you would answer it, like, have you ever been caught masturbating? Like, that kind of thing. Because that, you'd be like, uh, I don't want to answer that question. Like, that's awkward. Like, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So then they ask those questions, and then they ask, like, the real question, so then you're, they can gauge. So when they ask, like, did you have anything to do with the death of Rebecca, or did you harm her that caused her death or anything? He shot the fuck up. Mm. It was like, basically, if his finger was a fire hydrant, someone opened it all the way. The expert maps out, like, he, like, draws the line, and it's, like, a few, like, centimeters down on the page. And he's like, right here would be a fail. But he's way up here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, the suicide note is written super aggro and aggressive. And this is the way he, like, 
talks to the cops. Everything is like, can you believe I'm impacted by this? It's very like, I had to see her naked body and I can't believe this is happening to me. Like your fucking brother's girlfriend was either A, killed herself or B, murdered. And it's not about you, sir. And like, you should be really helpful. And But he was just really like, I want to be done. I want to get out. I hate this, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But the police do not think that Adam had anything to do with it because they have ruled it a suicide. So here's like the other evidence that points to Rebecca being murdered versus this. We talked about the knots, right? Oh my God. This, the last episode, oh my God, the last episode of the Oxygen Death of the Mansion, it is like Paul Holt gets up and you know, I was just like, (gasps) what are you doing, (laughs) sir? There's something about like men who use their brain and they like really... One, they're articulate, and two, they really, like, look at things in, like, a super detail-fashioned way and really... It's a little sexy, let me be honest. Yeah, and he's pretty. And that, too. (laughs) (laughs) So, basically, one of the things he looks at is the rope. So, earlier in the documentary, Billy and Lonnie go to... Because there is a theory that this is actually, like, a sexual thing. The reason she's, like, bound had to do with this, like, Japanese-style bondage. So they bring, like, the photos of her hands and feet tied, and they show these people, and they're like, that's not it. And they're so casual about it. Yeah, they're like, no, no. (laughs) No, and they say, like, this looks like it's someone being sloppy, someone doing this. They could do it to themselves. And so they teach Billy how to do it, and Billy does it. And then the sheriff deputy does it. However, the knot is on the bottom both times because they're doing it themselves and you're pulling upwards so the knot is at the bottom. However, the knot is on the top on Rebecca's hands. Right. Also, she's naked and bleeding. Their theory is that she tied herself to the bed, right? Like the other end of the bed and then hopped across her room. But she's naked and menstruating, which means blood would have dripped as she went, if not on the carpet, at least like down her at the very least. Right. None of that happened. Also, on the patio, the little balcony, there's two sets of footprints. And one is her feet are like set separately. And then one is like kind of partial, but like more defined her big right toe. And their theory is that Rebecca hopped out, hopped out of the patio, hopped one more time, basically landed on her toe and then flipped over. This is the sheriff's department like thought on this. Does she have a Hulk toe? Like... One toe can support all of her weight. Okay. Well, their theory is that, like, she landed that way and then fell over the thing. You know, like, she hopped. Yeah. Basically, what they were theorizing is that, like, she hopped and caught on the railing and her toe hit and then she flipped over, which is, could happen. And they're theorizing that this couldn't happen from, like, another person doing it. But they were like, yeah, if someone, like, moved her onto the patio and then pushed her. And then she fell back, that exact thing would happen. Right. Either way, you cut this. So it doesn't definitively prove that she was killed or not killed. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about how there was paint on the wall and what it said. But there's some interesting things about Rebecca's body and the paint. There was no paint on the inside of Rebecca's hand. However, there was paint on her breasts. There was paint on both, like, nipples and then on the side of it. And Keith Gear, who is the attorney for Rebecca's family in the civil suit, he actually has like a lifelike Rebecca replica. It's creepy. And he touches her boobs in it. 
But it also, in a way, like, I get it. It's creepy. It's fucking creepy. But it also, in a way, it's kind of like they're really putting, like, a human self to it. Because, like, when you look at it, like, the first time I saw it, she was, like, hanging in the courtroom. I was did they fucking dig her up? I was like, what the fuck is that? And then I was like, is that, that's not a mannequin. That's a part. Is they, do they have a person there? But you know what's really great about Keith Gear is that he worked on the case for like five years and he has like a whole room in his office that's just like, here's all the evidence proving why she was murdered. Just saying San Diego Sheriff's Department. It's right there. I'm sure he'd share. Go get it. Yeah. Come on now. Right. Fuck. But it's also there's like no paint on like the inside of her hands or her palms. And I paint. And anytime like you're doing something like that, you get paint on you. Like if you were to touch, if you were to get it on your boobs, you would have had to like trans from the inside of your hand. And so there would be traces of it. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, there was like the knife shaped transfer of blood on her thigh. And obviously the blood They don't know that it's that blood because they never tested it to see if it had any kind of, like, indicators that it came from that region. Here's also another reason why they can't say it's a suicide or a homicide is because they only did a single swab test on each object. Meaning, on, like, the six-inch by two-foot door, or, like, one foot by three feet, like, she saved him that the whole suicide note thing, they did one cotton swab over the whole thing. So basically, they only found Rebecca's DNA. However, the reason they might not be able to tell is because the major contributor of the DNA can wipe out the minor DNA contributor. And it's like Rebecca's door. Everything in this house should have Rebecca's DNA on it. Yeah, I got you. Also, this is one of the reasons why, like, Paul Hole says they should open and, like, retest all of the stuff because of the fact that, like, as we've learned in the last 10 years, they have extremely updated and, like, powerhoused the forensic testers. And, like, we were talking, what is that, that Blue Star stuff that we talked about? That stuff actually, like, would be able to, like, test other things for other DNA. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing. Typically, in sexual assault cases and there's a killing it's like an emergency killing it's not planned and they both the psychologist like crime scene psychologist and this other expert because they were talking about hangings they both said that this this didn't seem like pre-planned because like pre-planned crime scene like suicide cover-ups there's always giveaways this seemed like oh shit i killed her i need to like fix this and the fact that she was naked would mean that they were trying to humiliate her, which happens a lot in sexual killings. Right. So I talked about the expert who came in and talked about killing. Paul Holes also talks about this a lot, is that it's she was hung at a distance of like nine feet, which is considered to be a long drop. And it's actually meant to be more humane, quote unquote. Because when you hang someone at a short distance, like think back to the Whaley house. That guy was basically pushed off like two feet off the ground. So he he struggled for a long time. The reason why a long drop is considered to be more humane is it breaks the neck instantly because of your body weight and the sudden stop type thing. However, they think that Rebecca's body was lowered over, but she wasn't necessarily thrown, that she was pushed over and held and then lowered because the damage is minimal. But they say even if they like were to throw her off, there would be more damage done to her neck. Also, her hyoid bone was broken, which isn't typically broken in hanging cases. 
I mean, it is like very rarely, but it's more of like from what they said and from every other crime scene investigation show I've ever watched, it like floats around in here. And so like when you put like a a rope around someone's neck, it can easily move up into the jaw-ish area and not be like broken. But it was broken because mostly when they say with manual strangulation is that people get their fingers up into your neck and then they can break that. Another thing that Paul Holes points out is that in the black paint, like he's looking at her hands and like on the outside of her finger, on her right ring finger, there's like a little bit of paint on the nail. However, there's a pattern in it. And the pattern is that of like leather gloves. Mm -hmm. And then this pattern is found other places on her body. Like we talked about with the breast. It's other places like on her feet. It's on her like her wrist, places like that. Tara mentioned earlier, so now that we're talking about gloves, Tara mentioned earlier, like, I would just throw the gloves away. So what happened is that there were two pairs of gloves found in the home. One that was just sitting on the fucking coffee table. Ew. It's evidence exhibit two. It's just sitting there. The other pair is found in a crawl space in the basement. Oh, God. It's like a pair of latex gloves someone flung in there. So now we're going to go back to Adam and now we're going to talk about it. So... Rebecca's sister and family file a civil suit against Adam, Dina, and Nina at the beginning. Obviously, Rebecca's sister's lawyer, I mentioned, is Keith Gear. He starts to flesh out the stories, and basically, these women have solid alibis. And after they file the lawsuit against them, they drop against the two of them, and they actually... Keith holds a like press conference with the two women there and like other people and at, like publicly asks for their forgiveness and saying that the family isn't looking to get vengeance on someone who didn't do this. They're just trying to figure out who did this. I don't know how Dina really feels about it. I'm assuming not well, but they seemed at the at the time to be very gracious and accepting of the apology in public, which is good because I could see like if someone I loved was murdered and you know there was a theory out there i'd want to follow it to the end and she's trying to do the same thing on her side so right but because evidence still pointed to adam they went to trial and they basically hit him hard with all of the evidence i talked about and on april 4th 2018 nine out of 12 jurors because remember this is a civil case you don't have to have a unanimous answer Mm -hmm. Um, nine out of 12 jurors determined that Adam was liable for the wrongful death of Rebecca. They awarded $5.2 million to the family. Well, Adam was like, fuck that, blah, blah, blah. Everything is horrible. My life, I'm going to fight it. He actually went back to court in December to try to get it overturned of 2018, and it didn't work. The judge was like, no. In fact, that judge was asked to look at all of the evidence as like a 13th juror. And she basically determined that he was liable for the wrongful death of her. In February 7th of 2019, the insurance company that basically it's like Jonah's insurance company, Rebecca's family came to an agreement or a settlement of $600,000 vacating the $5.2 million award. But the judgment against Adam still stands. They've gone back to court a few times and Adam is trying really, really hard to get the judgment overturned so that he can be considered innocent. But as of right now, he has that against him. It's not a criminal charge. That's the thing is it's not a criminal charge. So that's where like these three investigators really come in on this because now that it's he's deemed liable for it, if the San Diego Sheriff's Department 
looks at all the evidence and considers it to possibly be a homicide, he can be named as a suspect. And then since he's liable, he could have charges, criminal charges put against him. So at the end of that documentary, which is really good, it coincides with a lot of the articles that are out there on this case. It gets referenced a lot, actually. These three, Lonnie, Billy, and Paul, put together all of the evidence in like a concise, I'm assuming, case file and go and give it to the San Diego Police Department. And I scoured the internet but could not find anything. But as of June of 2019, the San Diego Police Department has not contacted them back. Because after Adam got this liability, the San Diego Sheriff's Department basically opened it back up and looked at it and just said the same conclusions and was like, this is why she killed herself. She felt guilty. She was, it's basically what they were saying is she was a weak, distraught woman. So she killed herself out of guilt and they're not going to change it. So basically, as of right now, because the San Diego Sheriff is still Bill Gore, until they get a new sheriff, they won't. In 2018, he was actually ran against. The other guy didn't win, which I'm bummed about. But that guy said that if he wins, like, I I hope he's planning to rerun as well. But he basically says that if he were to win, he would open this case back up and do a homicide investigation. I hope he does too, then. Like, the San Diego Sheriff's Department doesn't care that they look like total jerks. And there's, like, these theories that, like, Jonah had something to do with it because when Jonah's, like, mind you, Jonah points fingers at Dina right away because he says that as soon as Dina found out that, like, Rebecca was dead, she seemed all giddy. He, like, talks to a detective who, I know this sounds weird, but is a woman and basically is like, come on, get them to, like, tell people I'm not a suspect. And the detective's like, we can't do that. You know, that's something we we never can say that someone's not a suspect. And he's like, well, you have to do something because my stocks are dropping. Boo-hoo. Yeah, which is why he wanted this all put to bed. Like, he didn't care that the investigation could have led to, like, finding out what happened to his son, anything like that. It's that the fact that, like, his multi-million dollars were, like, slipping away. And the thing that really just pisses me off about this whole case is that it just seems like Jonah wanted it to go away. The San Diego Sheriff's Department was like, fine, you want it gone? It's gone. I don't know what to tell you. And they did that. And then the San Diego Sheriff's Department isn't entertaining anything. And it's it's not even like they really looked at it. Basically, what they did is they like looked at the same evidence the same way that they looked at it last time. They didn't do anything else. They had all of that evidence. It's in like a store. It's in their like evidence locker. They could have swabbed with newer technology and they didn't. They just looked at the findings. That's all they did. Yeah. So that's basically that. It is a horrible story because a young, beautiful woman is dead. And I think what Lonnie said in part of it is true. Like if Rebecca wasn't beautiful, would we even be talking about her? Because like you said, she spoke six languages. She's really intelligent. And basically, they made her out to be like a billionaire, like a millionaire, billionaire's girlfriend, bimbo type thing. So I'm happy to tell people that she was smart and had goals and wasn't, she wasn't a gold digger. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will be back on Thursday with another stabby snippet or some other fun thing. It's most likely going to be a stabby snippet. (laughs) Yeah. We'll let you know. No, just kidding. Another episode. Another episode. Bye, Bye, guys.